You're listening to Reality San Francisco's weekly podcast. For more audio content or information, please visit us at realitysf.com. All right. Um, if you have a Bible, 1 Corinthians chapter 9, you can flip there in your Bibles. Um, 1 Corinthians chapter 9. Last week, we started a little series inside the letter of 1 Corinthians called Christ and Culture. And what we did is we got into a little discussion of meat sacrifice to idols. And I said last week, okay, meat sacrifice to idols, this whole conversation is, um, is not relevant at all to Western Christians. And it's a, it's a fairly irrelevant topic when we talk about food sacrifice to idols. And it is indeed irrelevant for Western Christians. Um, however, I did meet a nice gentleman after service from India last week who, when he was converted from Hinduism to Christianity, this topic of food sacrifice to idols was an all-too-real and frequent conversation with his family. And he shared with me how relevant that topic is and how relevant the teaching was to him just thinking through this in his own life. But for most of us, this topic is irrelevant, food sacrifice to idols, except that what this topic does is allow us to see inside the early church for a minute and how they dealt with living out this new faith in Jesus in a pagan context. They had this new faith, this newfound faith in Christ, and they lived in a very urban, a very secular, a very progressive city, not unlike San Francisco. Corinth was very much a San Franciscan type city in their day. And here was the question that they were dealing with, that they were going through. How can a Christian live in a pagan culture? How can a Christian live in a pagan culture? And I'm sorry if that question sounds a little off-putting, like it's an us-against-them sort of question. But it is a real question. How can a Christian live in a city like San Francisco? Let's be completely honest here. Non-Christians, those who don't profess Christianity or not walking with, with Christ, are often shocked when they meet Christians who live in the city. I don't know if you've ever introduced yourself and you started talking and someone and you and they asked you and you about religion. You said you were a Christian. They're like, "Well, wait, like there's there's actually, you actually live among us? Like, I I don't know. I didn't. I've I've never met a Christian before. I've met people here that said I've lived here for three years and I never came in contact with another Christian or at least someone who didn't say and raise their hand that they were a Christian. And when people I hear when people hear that I live in this city from outside the city, when I go, I live in San Francisco, many think, why in the world would you live in a city like San Francisco as a Christian? Vanessa Pinto captured this well when she wrote recently in the Huffington Post. One of the beautiful things about San Francisco is that we are encouraged to be whatever we believe we are. Gay, straight, kinky, poly, artistic, a hipster, a techie. But one thing that we are not encouraged to be in San Francisco is religious from a traditional Judeo-Christian standpoint. That's very true. I mean, this, this city is a, it's, it, it, it's a very difficult place to live out your faith in Christ. And how does a Christian live in a pagan culture like San Francisco? This is the overall question in the chapters 8 and 9, in first, 8, 9 and 10 in 1 Corinthians. Paul is dealing with, okay, how do you, now that you have faith in Christ, how do you stay and live and enjoy the city that you live in, but for the sake of the gospel? How do you do that? And the... And the um, I guess the controlling narrative here, the controlling sort of, um, uh, the, the, the controlling question that, 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 we're, that we're asked in this section is how far should a follower of Jesus go in identifying with the culture? Last week I opened up with a Jeremy Affelt illustration, and I didn't land the illustration. Um, a lot of you guys were like, wait, you didn't, so is it good or bad? 
Um, I had a couple people come to me afterwards. So what you're saying is that Jeremy Affelt did it right or wrong? Like what was, how did that story end? Well, the case study, and we'll, we'll try to land that story today, but the case study for this question of how in the world do we live in this culture as a Christian is, is in, in, this, in this very San Franciscan-like city is food sacrificed to idols. So here's the question. How can we, can we, the question was to Paul the Apostle, can we eat food sacrificed to idols or not? Can we eat food sacrificed to idols or not? That was the question that was given to, uh, given to Paul. Here's the answer. Sometimes yes and sometimes no. Okay, this was, and, and, and for some of you there, there are many skeptics who think, skeptics to Christianity who think that following Jesus is just a bunch of rules. Now, when they come into the church, it means, well, being a Christian means that I get a list of things that are taboo, that I can and cannot do, and that's it. But actually, when it comes to living out the Christian faith, there are things that are not as black and white as some people want to make them. There is subtlety and nuance in the Christian faith that should cause people of faith to question and think and meditate on Scripture and their heart's motive when facing life's difficulties. There is subtlety and nuance and beauty in the Christian faith. Things are not as black and white as they seem. And because of this subtlety and nuance, it should cause skeptics to take a second look at Christianity. See, life, and especially urban life, is full of rich complexities. And what we are taught here in this portion of the letter to the, first, to the, to the Corinthians is how to begin to navigate those complexities. To Paul... The controlling ethic that all Christians everywhere should use is this, love. Though there isn't, it isn't as black and white, navigating the cultural complexities of your city are not as black and white as some people want to say they are, but the, the thing that should control us is love. And the way that Paul defines love here is the strong people, the people with the knowledge, the people who know God, those strong people limiting their freedom for the sake of the weak. Are you, if you're strong in Christ and you have knowledge to limit your freedom for the sake of the weak, that's what love does. And that's what carries us over to our text this morning. Our text this morning is found in chapter 9 of 1 Corinthians in verses 19 through 23. Allow me to read it to you and pray. Paul says, Though I am free... Paul is saying, and he, what he does in all chapter 9, he talks about his rights and how he uses freedom, but he doesn't even use his rights the way that you would think he uses rights. He says, I have the right to be paid as a pastor here. I have the right to do that, but I'm not going to use it because it actually hinders the gospel in the city. I've used it uh, elsewhere, but I'm limiting my freedom for your sake. He says, though I, ha- I am free, I belong to no one. But look what he says next. I have made myself a slave to everyone to win as many as possible. To the Jews I become like a Jew to win the Jews. To those under the the law I become like those under the law, though I myself am not under the law, so as to win those under the law. To those not having a law I become like one not having a law, though I am not free from God's law, but under, under Christ's law, so as to win those not having the law. To the weak I became weak to win the weak. I have, this is a very famous saying of Paul, I have become all things to all people so that by all possible means I might save some. I do all this for the sake of the gospel that I may share in its blessings. This is God's word in our text this morning. And God, may you open our eyes, illuminate our hearts, 
and bring us all into faith. In Jesus' name, amen. So how do we relate to culture? How does Christ relate to culture? There have been many models passed down to us by the church and many models given to us by church history. But one thing remains more and more certain, especially in our Western culture. One thing remains more and more uncertain. Culture is moving away from Christianity. And not only is culture moving away from Christianity, it is frequently openly hostile towards Christianity. And this happens all the time. Christianity can be tolerated. It can be tolerated. And you might have noticed this. You've seen this maybe in your circles of influence. Christianity can be tolerated provided it's entirely private. If you keep your Christianity private then you can practice your Christianity. But as soon as Christian belief intrudes itself into the public square, or even trying to share your faith at a dinner party, hostility arises. It arises to where it's like, hey, this is a safe zone. Don't bring your religion into this zone. This is a religion-free zone. You can't bring your private faith into this public space. It's illegal. It's wrong. It's even seen as a form of oppression or, re, or repression. Like, don't, don't, don't put your, your beliefs upon me. And you can talk about that church stuff at church or your small group, but not here. This is the Christianity free zone. But to the disciples of Jesus, Christianity is anything but merely private. It is private, to be sure, but it's not just private. It's as public as Jesus' crucifixion. Our faith is to be public. And this is where the breakdown happens. How do we live a public faith? A lot of Christians have bought into the idea that private faith should stay private. Actually, in a a Barna Research Institute study done a couple years ago, trying to figure out why young people are leaving the church in masses, in droves. Young people are fleeing the church, and they did a study, and they, they came up with young Christians are less likely than Christians a decade ago to share their faith with, with faith with others. This is one of the things they came up with. Like, one of the things that we've studied is that this generation does not share their faith nearly, the, the impulse is not nearly there like it was 10 years ago. Christians are happy to keep their faith private. But followers of Jesus don't just have a divine impulse to share the gospel. There is a divine impulse to share the gospel. I mean, it's called the Great Commission. It's given to us by Jesus to go and make disciples of all nations. There is this command. There is this divine impulse in us that when we receive Christ, there's something in us that goes, I have to share this. But not just that there is a divine impulse to share the gospel. There is an actual human impulse as well. There's a human impulse to share good news. Think about it. Think about the power of an app like Instagram. Instagram is pure evangelism. That's what it is. It's evangelizing your breakfast and your latte art and your sunrises and your concerts and your babies. It's getting the good news of whatever you want to share with the world. It's getting, like, this is so good. I, I, what Instagram did beautifully was tapped into this human impulse all of us have that we can't really experience something unless we share it. And we try to fight it. I was at a concert recently where the, the guy stopped. They, they stopped the concert in the middle of the show and said, put away your phones and enjoy the moment. And everybody cheered, but the people that were cheering had their phones out. Like, yeah, thank you. Like, I don't know what that was. But anyway, and that's true. We should put away our phones and enjoy a moment. But there is something about sharing an experience that makes it more real to us. There's something about sharing that moment that makes that moment better. 
there, and I even tried to do it. I was just at a concert Friday night. I'm like, okay, I'm not going to bring my phone out. I'm going to be here. And a song came. I'm like, I got I to gotta share this with somebody. Like, I want someone to share this. And I'm like, I'm not going to pull. And I did it at the beginning. I go, I'm not going to do that again. And then an encore happened. And there was this beautiful acoustic version of I'm on fire by Bruce Springsteen. I'm like, I, I, here it is again. I pull up my phone again. I'm like, ah. <laughs> like, I just, there's something that's so divine about going, because I love this so much, I have to share it. Because this hits, hits me at such deep level, I can't truly, fully experience this until I share it with someone else. The sad part of our modern culture that tells a follower of Jesus to keep their faith private is they're saying, don't share the most important and truest part of your life with anyone. Not to mention the truest and most important part of all existence. Just not even to mention that, but just the fact that it's not, it's important to you. Granted, there's a dark side to this. And you know I had a, I'm going to talk about the dark side. This is my favorite part to talk about. There's a dark side to all this. Christians have really messed this up. This divine impulse to share their faith, to share our faith, to tell other people about Christ, we've really messed this up. We have a long history of screwing this impulse to evangelize the world. We've messed this up in a major way. A pattern of Christian evangelism put in play by, place by Constantine was for the Christian empire to conquer a territory And then the citizens of that empire could proclaim the gospel to the defeated peoples. So the the, the, the church would come in and dominate a people. And then once the people are dominated, then the church would move its way in and then evangelize the people. An army would come in overpowering with overpowering strength. And then in its shadow, preachers would proclaim the gospel of the one who came in total weakness. It makes no sense at all. And this pattern repeats with Charlemagne and with the Spanish conquistadors. There is a reason why the two oldest landmarks in San Francisco are the Mission and the Presidio. The Presidio was an army, a a, a fort, a a military uh, stronghold where they took over San Francisco and they established the Mission. Presidio first, and they started with a cross right in the Presidio. This is now, you know, San Francisco, though they wanted to call it Yerba Buena at the beginning, but they renamed it San Francisco. Planted a cross in the Presidio and said, this belongs to God. And then they conquered all of, all of San Francisco. And then once they conquered it, they forced people to become Christian. That is in our history. This is why we've screwed this up so bad. For years, the church has done this. So, we can't lie and say this isn't a part of our history. And we cannot deny that there are still remnants of this in our evangelism today. Think about how we evangelize. We normally go to people in need, which is right. We should go to people in need. But we serve them as people with power. We established institutions, though those institutions help a lot of people. But we forget that these institutions are seats of power. Uh, a missionary to Sri Lanka wrote, to serve from a position of power is not true service, but beneficence. He continues, one of the features of the life of, a, of the Christian community in the lands of Asia are a number of institutions of service which belong to this community. We run schools, the Christians run schools and hospitals and orphanages and agricultural farms, etc., But we we do not adequately adequately realize that these institutions are not only avenues of Christian service, but are also sources of secular strength. 
Because of them, we can offer patronage, control employment, and sometimes make money. The result is that the rest of the community will look at the church, look on the church with jealousy, sometimes with fear, and sometimes even with suspicion. The only way to build love between two people or two groups of people is to be so related to each other as to stand in need of each other. The Christian community must serve, but it must also be in a position where it needs to be served. So often in our Christian service, we serve from a place of power. We have the right belief. We have the right lives. We have the right money. We have the right institutions. And we don't need you. You need us. That's wrong. That's a very Constantinian way to evangelize. Paul, taking his cue from the master Jesus, introduces to the Corinthians a paradigm of Christian service that combines the divine impulse to tell the world the gospel of Jesus with the behavior that matches the gospel. If you think about how Jesus proclaimed the gospel, he came as a helpless babe. Not only did we need Jesus, but what Jesus decided to do in reaching humanity was make himself to where he needed us. He became a baby. Did you know that Jesus was dependent on Mary for nursing, for changing, for language? Jesus made himself to be in need. He was in need. He was poor. He needed people to invite him in and feed him. He, was, he made himself not only to where he's like, I need you, but you need me. This is true and utter identification. And this is exactly what Paul did when he moved his way into a missionary place. In a way, he said, I need you and you need me. So Paul famously says, I have become all things to all people so that by all possible means I might save some. And we forget this part. I do this all for the sake of the gospel. And so Paul says this, to the Jews I become like a Jew. Paul was a Jew, but he was a Christian now. He's a follower of Christ. And so there are certain things that he didn't fall under anymore. But he says, to the Jews, when I'm around the Jews, I actually come bring myself under the law again for their sake. To those under the law, I become like one under the law. I eat kosher. I, I, I observe the Sabbath. I, I, I celebrate high holy days. All these things, though I'm not under the law anymore in Christ, I put myself under the law for your sake. Then he says, to those not having the law, I become like one not having the law. So when he's around Gentiles, he's not like, I, I'm, I'll eat. Um, he says, I'll eat if someone brings food sacrifice to an idol. If they don't tell me that, I'll just eat what's put in front of me. I'm not going to even trip for the sake of the gospel. I'm going to do that. But look at what he says next. He says, I'm, though I'm not, I'm under Christ's law. And what he means by I'm under Christ's law is that I'm under the law of love. I'm under the law of the incarnation. I've become all things because that's exactly what Christ has done with me. I'm under his law, his impulse now. And then he says this, to the weak, I become weak. Did you notice something in that last sentence? You notice that he didn't say I become like the weak? I become like the Jew. I become like the one under the law. I become like the one not under the law. I became weak. He made himself weak for the sake of the world. What evangelism looks like for the follower of Jesus is pure identification with Christian distinction. This is what Paul is saying. Pure identification with Christian distinction. Let me unpack that a little bit for you. First, evangelism is a part of a Christian's DNA and obligation. I think because we have been handed such a bad legacy with evangelism, no one wants to do it anymore. I'll be completely honest with you. 
because of the legacy handed to us by people who've come before us, even in this city, I made, it a, I made a pact with the, with the people that were coming to help this church plant. You will not hand out cards saying go to this church. You will not stand on the street corner and yell at people. You will not, and I, and, I, and I made it a point, we will not do that. We will live here as Christians. And we will start to need this city and them needing us. And we, that will be a slow process. And guys, we're three years in and we haven't even gotten started yet. We're still learning how to do that. But it's a part of our DNA, and I would agree. I would say it's part of our DNA, but I'm, we're still afraid of it somewhat because we've been handed such a bad system. We don't want to be seen as that, that pushy salesperson who's pushing Jesus like a used car or something. Like, okay, and, like, and tries to turn everything into a Jesus moment, everything. Like, why you're so awesome at something? Well, because of Jesus. Like, well, how did you do that so fast? How do you type so fast on your phone? Because Christ is in me, you know, whatever. <laughs> It's like we try to do everything around that and it just, it's silly and it sounds like we're pushing all the time. But we also have heard someone somewhere say that if we live a certain way, people will ask us the hope that we have within us. But let's be honest what that means. It does not mean if you like make the perfect bourbon mixed cocktail, they're going, what's the hope that you have? (laughs) Like, how did you do that? How did you make that cocktail? Well, because of Christ. Like, that's not what it means. So we think we have to master culture. And once we master culture, then they're going to ask me about the hope that I have. Like, no, you're lying to yourself. You're mastering culture because you love culture. We know all about identification, but we've lost the impulse for the sake of the gospel. A lot of Christians I know who moved to San Francisco are like recovering kids who were bullied when they were young. They just want so bad to fit in, to be seen as normal, that they will adapt to the culture so fast, which is part of what Paul is saying here, but they leave behind any sense that it's for the sake of the gospel. We've been made fun of so much for being Christians. The culture around us says you just, you're you're like exclusive beliefs and the things that you try to do and then we're just like, we feel bullied and we're like, I don't want to, I'm so afraid, I just want to fit in, just just love me for me. And we, we, we do that. Unfortunately, this is what Gordon Fee says in his commentary on this verse. He says, unfortunately, freedom... As Paul says, to do whatever we, we want to do. Freedom too often is abused in the direction of self-interest rather than expressed in terms of concern for others and for the progress of the gospel. For the sake of the gospel, for the sake of the gospel, for the sake of the gospel. This is what Paul is getting at. How do we do this? We do this for the sake of the gospel. If evangelism is part of our DNA and our obligation, how do we do it? And this is this is, this is where, where I want to land for a while. This is so important. This is what Paul is talking about. Evangelism is part identification and part proclamation. First, identification, because I think this is so important. This will be the longest point. Has anyone ever heard of Johnny Cash? You know who Johnny Cash is? If you don't, you need to get hip on this. I mean, you should. I don't even know why you'd ask that question. Here's a picture of Johnny Cash. And Billy Graham. The coolest picture you'll ever see on this screen, probably. (laughs) Maybe even ever. Johnny Cash, Billy Graham. Okay, one of the most popular Johnny Cash albums is Johnny Cash at Folsom Prison. Folsom Prison is that prison right outside of Sacramento. I was listening to it on vinyl, which is the only way to listen to Johnny Cash. I was listening to it on vinyl, and I was, this weekend, I was struck again on how Johnny came into this prison singing their songs, singing prisoners' songs. 
And he even writes on the inside of the album, he has this long letter, and he writes, listen, listen closely to this album. You're going to hear prisoners groan. You're going to hear them scream. You're going to hear them shout. You're going to hear them almost like amen. You're going to hear them laugh. As they identify with all of his lyrics, as they identify with his music, as they identify with him, and as he identifies with them. Johnny wanted to start doing concerts in prison because he was in and out of jail growing up. He understood where these guys were at and what, and he wanted to do something for them. The first prison concert he ever did was not Folsom, it was actually San Quentin, which is right outside of San Francisco, right above Tiburon on the bay. Now, you guys know I'm from Bakersfield, right? Bakersfield? Represent? No one. A couple of you. You guys know I'm from Bakersfield. Now, one of the most famous, probably the most famous person to ever come out of Bakersfield was a man named Merle Haggard. A country music legend, icon, hero, total BA. Okay? First time in jail, 11 years old. Three more times, because, and, and if you read Wikipedia, it's because he grew up in Bakersfield. That's what they blamed it on. Growing up in Bakersfield, it's a hard life. Went to jail at 11. Three more times before he was 18 years old. No direction in life. When he was 18 and 19 years old, he found himself in San Quentin. In the audience of that first Johnny Cash prison concert was a young Merle Haggard. And when Merle Haggard recalls Johnny playing this, his first concert, he says that Johnny came in and he wasn't singing great at all. His voice was completely shot because he stayed up late partying in San Francisco the night before. And no one was really getting it, but then soon enough after he started singing a couple songs, he says soon enough the crowd was won over because he did everything the prisoners wanted to do. He had their attitude. He sang their songs. And then Moore Haggard said, this is a quote, he was a mean mother from the South who was there because he loved us. That concert changed Merle Haggard's life. And when he got out of prison, he went on into a career of music. What Johnny Cash did in that can be seen as a part of identification. He came singing their songs. He came feeling their brokenness. He, became, he came in like a prisoner. Was he a prisoner? No, he wasn't a prisoner. He came in like a prisoner. When Martin Luther King Jr. was in his time in jail in Birmingham, and Alabama, he wrote a very famous letter. He was in jail in Birmingham in 1963. The Reverend Martin Luther King Jr. had arrived in the city for a peaceful, nonviolent demonstration against racial, racial injustice in the city. The city sheriff at that time, however, had secured a court injunction making the march illegal. Martin Luther King marched anyway, and he was thrown into jail. The next day on Tuesday, April 16, 1963, he was given a copy of the Birmingham News. It contains a letter addressed to him from eight pastors and a rabbi. And they wrote to Martin Luther King in jail from this newspaper, and they argued that he should have been more patient. His response is called a letter from a Birmingham jail, and it's very famous now. I'm going to read a part of it to you. I guess it's easy for those who have never felt the stinging darts of segregation to say wait. But when you have seen vicious mobs lynch your mothers and fathers and will drown your sisters and brothers at a whim, 
And when you have seen hate-filled policemen curse, kick, brutalize, and even kill your black brothers and sisters with impunity, when you see the vast majority of over of your 20 million Negro brothers smothering in an airtight cage of poverty in the midst of an affluent society, when you suddenly find your tongue twisted and your speech stammering as you seek to explain to your six-year-old daughter why she can't go to the public amusement park that she has been, that has just been advertised on television, and she she, and sees tears welling up in her little eyes when she is told that Funtown is closed to colored children and see the depressing clouds of inferiority that begin in her little mental sky and see her begin to distort her little personality with an unconsciously developing a bitterness toward white people. When you take a cross-country drive and find it necessary to sleep night after night in the uncomfortable corners of your automobile because no motel will accept you. When you're humiliated day in and day out by nagging signs reading white men and colored. When your first name becomes nigger and your middle name becomes boy, no matter how old you are. And when your wife and mother are never given the, the respected title miss. And when you're harried, day and haunted, harried by day and haunted by night by the fact that you are a negro, living constantly at tiptoe stance, never quite knowing what to expect next. And plagued, and plagued with inner fears and outer resentments. When you are forever fighting a degenerating sense of nobodiness, then you will understand why we find it difficult to wait. What was the reverend asking for? He was asking for identification. He was asking, would you walk a mile in my shoes? My belief, this is kind of what happened to Jeremy Affelt when he moved to San Francisco. His homophobia, his fear of homeless people and all that stuff, when he walked a mile, when he lived life here for a while and got out of his hotel room and started living among, it, he denounced all of that. This is what the Apostle Paul's approach to ministry was. This is what his approach to incarnational ministry. To become under the law again, but to become ruled by another law, higher law, love. Incarnation for the sake of the gospel. To become weak. But Paul was just learning from his master, our master, Jesus, who said, who was said of in, in Philippians by Paul, he was in the very nature God, but did not consider equality with God something to be used for his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing. He made himself nothing taking the very form of a servant, being made in human likeness and being found in appearance as a man. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even the death on a cross. As followers of Jesus, we must tie ourselves to the city to where the city needs us and we need it. That's the only true biblical way to start to evangelize. And I'm not ashamed to say that that's what we want to happen here. But not in the way it's been said, not in, a, not in a Constantinian way, not in a way that, that maybe it's been passed down to us. Not in a way that yells at people that they're living this way and that way, but a way that identifies with them. In a way that goes, we need you as much as you need us. And you might not think you need us, but we'll say, first and foremost, we need you. I love, and I was reminded of it this week, this is exactly what God told the children of Israel to do when they were kicked out of Jerusalem and brought into Babylon. In Jeremiah 29 it says, This is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says to those who's carried into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon, to the pagan city Babylon. God says this, 
Hey, build houses and settle down. Plant gardens and eat what they produce. Marry and have sons and daughters. Find wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage so that they too may have sons and daughters. Increase in number there. Do not decrease. Also, seek the peace and the prosperity of that city because that I carried you away in exile. I want you to be so tied to that city. He says, pray to the Lord for that city because if that city prospers, you will prosper too. Identify with that city so much that in its, in its weakness, you're weak. and its strength, you're strong. When it succeeds, you succeed. When it fails, you fail. When it has problems, you have problems. That's how God wants us to be to- so tied to the context in which we're living. This is what it means to identify with the tech community. This is what it means to identify with communities in, in the Tenderloin, communities in the Castro. That we tie ourselves so close with them that we truly identify that their pain becomes ours, that we start singing their songs. And their celebration also becomes ours for the sake of the gospel. We can't lose that for the sake of the gospel. We so often think that the answer is tolerance. But tolerance is not good enough. We can ignore people with tolerance. We can tolerate the consequences that sin brings in people's lives. We're not to call to tolerate that. Tolerance can be a cover-up for a lack of courage. And exclusion doesn't work either because exclusion lacks love. Exclusion, exclusion is what the church is guilty of more than anything. We must reject both tolerance and exclusion and embrace an incarnation. An identification with others that we tie ourselves to them. But lastly, we must not forget proclamation. This will have to do not just with the way we live our lives, but our speech. Because we have to remember the gospel of Jesus Christ is news. It's news. And what that means is that it's not advice. We don't go up to people and go, here's some good advice for you. If you clean up your act, if you stop being like you are, then God will receive you. That's advice. That's not news. News is this. Christ died for you. He accomplished everything for you. He will bring you back into created order. He brings us back to God. Period. That's news. Now all you do is respond to that news. The gospel is proclamation because the gospel is news. The gospel is something that has been done for us and is something that we must respond to. Timothy Keller writes, we must not give the impression that the gospel is simply a divine rehabilitation program for the world. We must not depict the gospel as primarily joining something but rather as receiving something. If we make this error, the gospel becomes another kind of salvation by works instead of salvation by faith. We evangelize by remembering this distinction. The gospel isn't something we do. It's news that we have to respond to. And so I'll close like this. Have you responded to the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ? Who has so identified with us that he took on our flesh. And every demon and enemy that seeks to destroy our flesh. To bring us back to God. Christ fully identified with us. To where wherever you are right now, if you're in a state of unbelief, if you are in a state of despair, rejoicing, confusion, pain, bitterness, Christ entered into all of our stories. On the cross, Christ asked, why have you forsaken me? We might have felt that way in our lives before. 
Christ died asking our questions. Christ lived our life. He fully identified with us. So no matter what you're going through, you know Christ identified with you. And he, he can sit there like, the, like some of the best friends in the world. When you tell them something, they don't try to pull you out of it. They're like, oh, I know that. Have you ever heard that from someone who loves you? You tell them something and they go, I know that feeling. You're like, I'm not crazy. You've done, yeah, I've been there, I know. Christ is the ultimate friend that not only enters into our story, but knows in a glorious way, in an instant, how to pull us back to himself. How to bring peace. This is what Christ does. And guys, until that, until you see what Christ has done for you, there is no way in the world that you can look outside in the city and go, I can do that for the city. It's only when you see what Christ has done for us. When you see that he fully identified with us. When we see that, that sets our heart on fire. That allows us to look around and go, I want to fully identify. And I know it's going to be messy, guys. I told you this last week. It's good. This is messy. I mean, first, I mean, the church in Corinth knows how messy this is. Christ was called a drunkard and a sinner. Because he got drunk and sinned? No. Because I identified with him. So much so that you couldn't tell them apart at a party. But Christ's life of love, his life of service, his commitment to God and holiness was so profound that when sinners saw it, something happened. Church, identification with Christian distinction, that tension is what what we're hoping for. It's going to be hard to hit. And we're going to have a time, guys, when we're going to swing to the holiness side and we're going to lose the identification part. And there's this time that I think our church is at probably more than, more times than not where we slide a little bit too much more to the identification and we just slide a little bit more to the holiness. But we have to remain in that tension if we're going to stay here long term. Let's pray. God, I thank you for Jesus and the gift that you are. And Lord, I just want to I, I, I feel like we just need to sit in that for a while. I know a lot of us can leave right now going, this is what I'm supposed to do, this is what I'm supposed to do, but Lord, before we go do anything, let it just be. And may we hear from you that you identify with us, that you came into our brokenness and stepped into our place. Maybe even our own souls need to be ministered to. Maybe we've been pouring out so much in our neighborhoods, in our lives, trying to minister to people and try to be all things to all men that we might have even forgotten who we are. And we just hear that voice from heaven that we are beloved. Thank you, God. We receive that. In Jesus' name, amen.